Well, this is Kurt Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air, and I am Jim Grant, and with me, as um, usual, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Our friend uh, Henry is at the control panel, and joining us today is uh, John Hamburger, who was the uh, moving force behind a superlative publication called Restaurant Finance Monitor, and he has other irons in the fire of uh, financial publications, but we'll concentrate on his uh, fine work in Restaurant Finance Monitor. But first, Evan, I have been overwhelmed by a sense of nostalgia this morning. You know, the uh, Ukrainian businesses, I suppose it's not everyone is um, struck most by uh, nostalgic feelings, but I was taken back to um, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. I was uh, around, certainly reading the papers and uh, you know, absorb the uh, propaganda from both sides that uh, Russia felt free to install its missiles in Cuba, and we felt free to say, if you do that, it's all over. And there are similarities, of course, with today's Ukrainian visit. But what most struck me in the nostalgic vein this morning was a headline, Evan. It was a quote, city to lay out plans for generating better returns. That's from Reuters. And I was taken back a hundred years. Now I was—I just was starting in finance a hundred years ago. But I remember as if it were yesterday, uh, Citibank's problem uh, with a concentrated loan book in Cuba it was underwriting uh, Cuban sugar industry. And wouldn't you know it, a slip of the judgment of the credit committee allowed Citi to be exposed eighty percent of its capital to Cuban sugar loans. And. Uh, you know, was, uh, then as now, sugar was a somewhat cyclical commodity, and uh, it did recover its then prices, uh, but not until 1945. <laughs> and in the meantime, Citibank struggled, and um, its uh, then CEO, Charles Mitchell, allowed, conceded to the uh, PCORA committee investigating such things that, uh, uh, yeah, the bank might have been sunk had the uh, they not dealt with this at the time. So every generation or so, or perhaps every 15 years or so, there is some headline such as city to lay out plans for generating better returns. And it, it, it gives me a sense of solidity. It gives me, it reminds me of the cyclicality of everything in finance, but also it grounds me uh, that uh, there are certain uh, permanent truths in finance. And one of them is that Citibank is going to do better the next cycle. It reminds me of a little bit of a classic joke in emerging markets, which is Brazil is the country of the future and always will be. That's true as well. Hey, John Hamburger, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Hi, Evan. Yeah. I have in my hand the February 15th issue of uh, Finance, uh, Restaurant Finance Monitor, and I commend this as the uh, quintessential example of the micro illuminating the macro. I mean, between the pages the covers of Restaurant Finance Monitor. You can learn all you need to know, and perhaps then some, about the microeconomics of um, restaurant finance. But there are also innumerable uh, micro insights that spill over into the macro. You get a sense of what we are pleased to call the economy, which is a concepts that is subject to grave distortion and uh, elastic definition. One of the things that struck me, and Evan, I know you have other your, your own impressions, but um, John Hamburger, when you write about uh, Starbucks and its labor difficulties now, uh, the attempts of, uh, some on the part of some Starbucks employees to unionize, you write as follows. So um, Starbucks workers, probably the best trained ones in the industry, are demanding higher pay, even twined with the union. So much for stock savings accounts, paid time off, parental leave, and tuition reimbursement, close quote. Like, that's gratitude. 
<laughs> or that that's the labor market, right? That's exactly the labor market today. Starbucks is a great example. I think those of us in the restaurant industry look at that and we say to ourselves, you know, if, if they're going to try to organize Starbucks with all the benefits, you know, and the Starbucks have been a leader in, you know, jumping wages towards $15 an hour, all these benefits they offer, if they're going to go after Starbucks, uh, who else are they going to go after, you know, the poor little Burger King operator in Alabama? Uh, it's really, uh, it's really interesting what's, what's happened out there. You know, one thing about the restaurant business, back in the fall, I think the restaurant operators that survived were all thinking they've hit they've hit the home run. They they've they've hit it out of the park. They they there's fewer restaurants out there. Some some analysts estimate, you know, roughly 10% restaurants went away during the pandemic. They have tremendous liquidity because the government pumps so much money into the restaurant business through the PPP loan program, the restaurant revitalization uh, fund pumped money into it. So the survivors thought they had it made. And then boom, all of a sudden, uh, the Omicron comes along, the labor market tightens up, inflation goes wild. And uh, you see now uh, the public restaurant chains, you know, their guidance going forward is they're, they're not so sure any longer. And analysts are adjusting their estimates. So it's just amazing how quickly things changed uh, in, in the restaurant business just over the last couple of months. Starbucks is a, is a, is a great example. Yeah. How much has the competitive landscape actually changed during COVID? Because when you last came on this podcast in 2017, you made the point that there was just too many restaurants relative to the number of stomachs in America. You said about 10% have closed. Have we gotten back down to like the correct number of restaurants relative to the dining public? And if so, kind of what does that mean once we get through this inflationary period? Yeah. You know, Evan, there's really no way, I, I don't know about a way I could quantifiably say that we've got the number of restaurants, you know, for the for the demand of the dining public. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, there were a number of restaurants that closed. 10% is probably the number everybody throws around and mainly in the full service category. But what's interesting is that the capacity levels of a lot of restaurants are down as well. So you take some of the restaurants like Denny's or IHOP, Perkins, some of those that were open 24 hours. Well, they can't be open 24 hours anymore because they can't find employees to staff them for 24 hours. And so the restaurant chains that have had decent labor supply, been able to attract workers, have really done, you know, fairly well uh, during the pandemic, and really did well up until uh, up until about January. It is a better time from a you know restaurant per capita standpoint for restaurants today. It's, I don't think that's the uh, I don't think that's the issue. You know, if you read what uh, Wall Street talks about, there's plenty of demand. It's just what's happening on the on the cost side and the labor supply side that's really uh, really been difficult for these guys. I see a, a, a stunning fact in the uh, uh, final page of the um, Trade Issue Restaurant Finance Monitor, and that is since I don't know since the I guess the, the pandemic struck, there are now are one million fewer jobs and wages are twenty percent higher. That's kind of it in a nutshell. But, you know, apropos of a capacity, um, something else I see in this fine publication is the quote from the CFO of Chipotle, uh, this fellow. I, I, you know, you, you can't blame somebody for speaking in incomplete sentences under the press of a live audience on a conference call. You know, they speak in code. But, but still, um, you quote here uh, the CFO of Chipotle kind of tossing a word salad about how um, 
they are now going into smaller communities, uh, fewer than 40,000 residents. And you string a bunch of, uh, and I'm now paraphrasing the quote, you string a bunch of small towns together where there's one that's 50 miles away, another that's 50 miles away, and you stream those along in a field so that leaders, huh? And Restaurant Finance <laughs> Monitor concludes by saying, sounds to us as if Chipotle is running out of good sites to build location. So. <laughs> That's usually the case when you start justifying uh, going into <laughs> towns of 40,000 or less and stretching them 50 miles apart, uh, you know, so one uh, supervisor can visit uh, each of the stores. You know, I think the market has caught on there, though. I was looking at this this morning before the call. Uh, Chipotle is down about 22% from its uh, 52-week high. And year-to-date, Chipotle is down uh, about 16.7%. And uh, I think that maybe some people have caught on to that besides the monitor. <laughs> um, going on to uh, what, what Jim was pointing out at the beginning, which is that um, restaurants are kind of like the economy where it's small. Um, you pointed out that a lot of restaurants can't stay open 24 hours a day because they're actually having trouble getting enough staff to stay open. And I know that people have pointed out that much of what has driven inflation since, you know, March of 2020 has been kind of the economy shut down and people switching their purchases from services to goods. I mean, we, we saw used car prices skyrocket on the back of, you know, both high demand and supply chain issues. But it does seem as we're shifting to services, we're running into kind of different constraints in terms of supply. Just given what you're seeing in terms of restaurants, their ability to ramp up to meet demand as Omicron ends, and kind of their dealing with, you know, commodity inflation and kind of wage inflation. How do you see this over the course of the year? Well, you know, with the commodities being up and labor prices continuing, you know, labor wages continuing to go to rise, it gives restaurants cover to raise prices. And it actually can be uh, good for them because a customer comes in and sees the price of whatever particular product is up. And they know that, you know, they know because they see it in the grocery store, they see it in the used auto market, they see it all around them that prices are up. So, of course, the prices in the restaurant are up. So you raise prices. Doesn't necessarily mean your rent went up. Uh, if you've got a fixed rate lease, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, your interest rate uh, went up if it's if it's got some fixed component to it. So it's not a bad thing for restaurants to get some cover to to raise prices, and they they bet on the fact that while labor costs aren't going to go down, you, know, you don't ever hear of situations where you know the the restaurant company forecasts lower labor costs, you know, in the in the following month or following year. But commodity costs, you know, can go down. They go up, they go down, and when they go down, you've got some cushion built in as a uh, you know as a restaurant operator cushion in the margin. The trick. And that's that's the tough part of running these restaurants is how high can you raise those prices before the customer just says, ah, I got an alternative. You know, I'm I'm going to skip going to Applebee's and, and spending twenty dollars. I'll go through the drive through at Wendy's and spend twelve, you know, ten or twelve. And that, I think, is just starting to go on right now. We haven't you know, we really haven't seen the numbers yet. I I suspect the first quarter will, you know, it'll it'll tell the tale. We'll see what we'll see what happens. You know, some of the really great brands, you know, the ones that have really done well through this pandemic, you know, Chick Fil A. Um, you know, I think I think Raising Cane's is another one. You know, in the Midwest, it's done really well. Um, you know, should be should be okay. But it's really going to be interesting to see what happens to sort of these second tier, third tier restaurant chains when uh, the customer starts to look at look at alternatives. Now, talk about the elastic band of affordability. 
and the art. That's exactly yeah. what it is, Jim. I've seen it over the years, you know, restaurant guys, you know, they love to raise prices when they get a chance, you know, it's, and they've been given cover and, uh, and uh, it's just how far can you, how far can you take it? And uh, that's, that's the real, real trick. And I, and I think what you'll see um, for now, you know, restaurants have gotten away from discounting. You don't see a lot of that, you know, the, the dollar menus that were in the drive-thrus and McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's for all intents and purposes, they're gone. And um, you'll, you'll, you'll start to notice that the executives in the C-suites at the restaurant chains are nervous about traffic when they start to start to discount, when they start running, running the specials again. And uh, they've been pretty, pretty good at not running them. Um, you know, they didn't have to because the demand, the demand was there. And we'll just, you know, have to see what happens here in the first, first quarter. Is there one or two restaurants who tend to be, I guess, price boilers that people should be watching for to see if they do anything to react? Well, you got to follow what McDonald's does. I think there, uh, once McDonald's gets into it, you'll know that some other chains have have because um, yeah, they, they they don't want it. They don't want a discount. You know, that's the last thing they want to do. But you know, I would watch and see what happens. Maybe in the pizza business with uh, pizza, I might look at uh, in the burger business. I might look and see what Burger King does. Um, you know, those those would be the ones that I would. I would watch to see, uh, you know, Pizza Hut all of a sudden starts coming out with some some great uh, two for one pizza deal and drags Domino's and Papa John's into it. You know, there's always somebody who starts the little the little uh, skirmish, and uh, you know, I'd I'd look at I'd look at maybe Pizza Hut or or uh, Burger King. Do you see a rotation in terms of the winners in the restaurant space? And just Jim and I checked the Bloomberg before this call started, and I believe Wendy's and McDonald's are trading at or near their all-time highs, whereas you've already pointed out Chipotle's had a decent correction, and Domino's Pizza, which has probably been the restaurant the furthest ahead in terms of its digital strategy, is also kind of down hard from its all-time high late last year. As you see people increasingly trade down from inflation, or if you see the, the rise of price wars, do you see a difference in the beneficiaries rising or the, the people who benefited the most in the last two years perhaps not benefiting as much going forward? You know, I I like to think that uh, the, the quick serve restaurants are the ones that are the best positioned for restaurants, you know, for restaurant um, success going forward. I think they've got the best opportunity. They've got drive through windows. They've got good systems for you know, mobile ordering for takeout, for delivery. Um, they can become very efficient, you know, as the dining rooms and a lot of the quick serve restaurants have been closed or they're closed at certain hours and only drive-thrus are open. So I like, I still like that business that as a, you know, if I was going to bet on, I was going to become a franchisee, you know, I'd want to be, I'd want to be in that business. And the, the business right now that I think is tough is the full service business. And I think what happens there is the places that have demand that can get relatively high check average, you know, those, those will survive, you know, those ones. But, but if you're in sort of in the middle, you know, your food, take a, a casual dining restaurant, uh, say like uh, Applebee's or Chili's, but we'll, we'll take a menu item, we'll say a chicken sandwich or a burger. I'm not sure you could taste the difference between a burger uh, or a chicken sandwich at an Applebee's or a Chili's from one that's produced at, uh, say, Wendy's, uh, Chick-fil-A. I don't know that you could taste the difference, but you think of all the costs that go into running those those casual dining places. You know, uh, you've got wait staff that are taking, you know, that are being tipped, which which adds to the check average. They're they're in a, I think they're just in a tough 
tough position. They've got to provide value so they don't lose everybody to QSR, but uh, they can't provide too much value because they won't be able to have a margin cover the cost. I like the fast food business. I think the casual dining business is a tough, it's a tough one. Well, let's talk about the uh, the future. Enough of this, uh, you know, uh, present stuff. Markets are all about tomorrow. So I'm, I'm now uh, looking on the final page of the current issue of Restaurant Finance Monitor. And this is the uh, the page given over to the uh, uh, the answer man who chooses not to sign his name. I think only out of professional modesty because the subject matter is, is quite uh, chunky. And this answer man installment uh, deals with the uh, the vision of the future of the restaurant business and what is going to thrive and what not. And uh, perhaps, John, you can uh, speak for the answer man in this regard, but I'm going to read one paragraph here, and maybe you can elaborate. And the, the basic thrust is that uh, in the future, the automation will finally have uh, have conquered the problem of the aforementioned 20% higher wages and 1 million people showing up for work fewer than before the pandemic. So uh, there'll be uh, you know, a lot of robots and uh, many fewer human hands. So, quote, only one employee will be needed to monitor the robots and automated cooking machines. Think Homer Simpson's job at the nuclear power plant. is appetizing. Burgers, tacos, chicken, pizzas, hot dogs, pancakes, sandwiches, and french fries can all be prepped by robots and cooked automatically by the machines. Now, is this better than a robot behind the controls of an airliner? (laughs) I'm thinking about lunch. So to help us understand this this vision, which is uh, apart from the Homer Simpson illusion, which is um, arresting, apart from this, it is a genuine business vision of, yeah. uh, of tomorrow. And, and is it how how far away is this? And is it and how much capital is going to be required to make it happen? And give us a sense of the timeline of this thing. It sounds eminently plausible. Yeah. Well, it is, and I think if you go back maybe ten years when um, when Obamacare was first being introduced, uh, you've seen a just every year, uh, drip, 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 wages going up in the restaurant business. And you know the target back in those days was you know fifteen dollar minimum wage. You now that was the target. Well now now the target is that you you, you listen to some of the politicians and some of the uh, uh, some of the union unions and it's eighteen dollars, twenty dollars living wage. And so restaurants were able to deal with the rising wages through periodic price increases, efficiencies. But when all of a sudden the COVID hits, the restaurants have to shut down for a period of time. Then they come back, but the staffing doesn't come back. You know, a million workers decide this business isn't for us. That, I think, is the big wake-up call for restaurants, is that they have to start to replace workers that, you know, with with machines, with robots. And one of the things that I think that's happened in COVID during this, this COVID period is there's been an, a tremendous explosion in small technology companies that are trying to figure out how to automate automate the, the restaurants. And the restaurants will start being automated in the quick serve space. You know, I'll give you an example. So there's a company, little startup company called Miso Robotics. Well, Miso has developed this robotic arm that can do a lot of things. It can hold the fry basket and drop the fry basket into the fries. It can cook fries. There's another company that's developing a, a pizza maker that will take fresh ingredients and make pizzas. And that's where 
seeing a lot of money flowing. White Castle, you're familiar with the White Castle chain, is testing, going to test this robotic arm in about 100 of their locations. So you're seeing little tests all over the you know, what kind of money is it going to take? I think it's going to take a tremendous amount of money. And the big chains, the problem is the big chains, they have a certain amount of lip service on it, but they're not yet entirely focused because remember now, a lot of the restaurants have been franchised to franchisees. And so these franchisors, they're focused on collecting royalties. And uh, it's going to be these company-owned operations that are going to really be, are going to have to fund this and I think franchisees ultimately demand that their franchisors put dollars into this. And I think a lot of the suppliers are going to have to help fund this as well because um, you know their their livelihoods, their businesses are, uh, are are impacted as well. It's it's really interesting, Jim, to see all the interesting technology that's being developed right now. It's kind of a hot little area. And um, it, it isn't going to be here for a while, but that is going to be the future. You're going to have, my my opinion, two types of restaurants. They're the quick serve, they're automated, and then you've got the nicer restaurants, very typical of today's restaurants. But you you want that experience of being waited on, you are going to have to pay for it. Uh, John, uh, you touched on something that I, I did want to follow up with you. When you spoke at our conference in 2018, you made the point that Wall Street had become very enamored with the asset light franchisor model and ascribed pretty fancy multiples to companies like you know McDonald's, um, Restaurant Brands International that had franchised a large portion of their um, you know restaurant base. But at the same time, the franchisees who actually operate the restaurants and bear the operating costs were getting the short end of the stick. And, and just to quote what you told our um, our listeners, you can't have one side of the franchise contract getting fabulously rich while the other side face these headwinds alone. The concept of a moat around a franchisor is a myth. That somehow a brand can separate itself from the unit-level economics of its franchisees is not grounded in reality. And now you said that as they invest going forward, you think franchisors are going to have to pay a lot more in order to stay competitive. Has the balance of power shifted between franchisees and franchisors as a result of the virus? Or do you see this just changing as a result of technology going forward? No, I don't. I don't think the balance. Uh, I don't think the balance of power has has shifted at all. I think franchisors have had higher valuations. You know, since I said that back in uh, 2018, I think the valuations are still still higher than franchisees. Franchisee valuations came up over the last two years because of uh, all the money, the PPP money, the, the people chasing deals, so they popped a little bit. But um, the franchisors still still have all the power. They're the ones that control the marketing. They're the ones that control the R&D. So they're the ones that are really going to have to uh, step up and uh, help develop this. I think there's a lot of them looking at it, and uh, they put teams together to do it. But it, it's... I was going to use in the newsletter the Marshall Plan, you know, where restaurants are going to have to get together and fund this. And I didn't use it. I, I thought it might not be, uh, be appropriate, but uh, that's really what it is. It's going to take a lot of money to do this. But I, I envision in the future, you're going to have highly technological kitchens that are going to be run by people that, you know, run run all types of manufacturing type type machines. You know, you're not going to need people to put the, the pickle and squirt the uh, squirt the ketchup onto the burger. It can all be done. Uh, it can all be done automatically. And I think it can be bagged automatically and it can be delivered automatically. And um, it's going to be a while. But as long as there's this you know, if costs continue to rise, they're going to have to they're going to have to do something. Well, it's not the first time that Homer Simpson has showed American culture the way forward. <laughs>
Yeah, I haven't heard back from any of the restaurant people about that uh, that example <laughs> that I that I gave, but uh, you can picture it. Yeah, I like also in this discussion about the. Uh, uh, the speculation in the future that uh, there's the robots are going to you know clean up the parking lot and also perhaps drive the late shift home. So this uh, brings in Homer nope. Simpson and Elon Musk, which is a, a couple made in heaven. Evan, what do you, what do you think? No. Well, it's definitely made somewhere. I'm not entirely sure heaven would be the right place. Well, John Hamburger, this has been um, the most excellent installation, I must say, of uh, current yield. And I thank you for being with us. So. Um, Evan, I thank you. You have no choice but to be Henry. You, I mean, it's just like your job, right? But, but uh, John Hamburger did not have to be here yet. He chose to be here. So, John, thank you. And on behalf of Current Yield and Grant's Interest Rate Observer, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for being with us. And we'll talk again soon. 